Father, what a line of Scripture you have put before us this morning. If you do not believe His writings, how will you now believe my words? God, I pray that everyone here, under the sound of my voice, would believe your writings in order that they might believe the One whom You have sent, the only Savior, God the Son, the true Messiah. God, I ask that You would help me to proclaim Christ this morning. And I pray that You would give everyone ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to believe, and wills to respond. I ask in Christ's name. Amen. I assume most of you have heard of the principle of the rule of law. The principle of the rule of law means that every citizen is subject to the law, including the lawmakers themselves. It stands in contrast to the idea that the ruler is above the law. In other words, the rule of law means that nobody is above the law. Not the president, not the legislators, not the judges, not the police, not the military. Samuel Rutherford, uh, one of the men who was instrumental in writing the Westminster Confession of Faith, wrote about this uh, in a book called Lex Rex. And... Uh, that the Latin uh, translated means the law is king. And that uh, when at the time that Samuel Rutherford wrote this, there was a king in England. And um, he was saying the king is not above the law, that the law is above everyone. This principle of the rule of law has been a foundational principle in the fabric of our nation. I wish that we as an electorate would elect people who would rejoice in this principle of the rule of law rather than electing people who try and stretch and distort this principle. And I'm making more of a commentary on we as the electorate and the choices we make and whom we elect that I am and the people who are whom we elect. The rule of law is a central plank in our continued freedom as a nation. Without the principle of the rule of law, our government will become a tyranny. Now I'm mentioning the importance of the rule of law because it's it is clear in our passage that even Jesus Christ Himself, God the Son, submitted Himself to the rule of law. If anyone could claim the right to exempt Himself from the rule of law, certainly it would be God the Son. In order to understand our passage, it is important to understand uh, that Jesus submitting Himself to the rule of law so let's look at the passage. We're still in the middle 
of the extended discussion between Jesus and the religious um, leaders. Uh, for those of you who are visiting, uh, we it is our practice to work our way through books of the Bible. So we've been in John chapter 5, uh, four weeks maybe. And uh, the passage began with Jesus healing a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. Jesus healed him on the Sabbath. The religious leaders were then outraged that Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. But their outrage was turned to pure hatred. When Jesus later claimed to be equal with God. Now if I had been Jesus... I would, have written, I would have written these people off. I would have disengaged from the conversation. But Jesus is patient. Uh, he not only continued in this conversation, He called them to trust in Him. He called them to have life in Him. He called them to participate in the resurrection of life. In verses 30 through 47 that uh, Fred read a few moments ago, Jesus continued to seek after the conversion of these religious leaders. And he continued to point out, or he went on to point out that there were several powerful witnesses that testified that Jesus is exactly whom he was claiming to be. We're going to look at these witnesses this morning. The first witness that Jesus presented is Himself. Uh, verse, chapter 5, verse 31. And it reads, If I alone bear witness about Myself, My testimony is not true. But what He had done is He had borne witness to who He was. Jesus claimed several times in the conversation to be equal with God. In verse 25, He claimed to be the Son of God. In um, verse 27, He claimed to be the Messiah when He referred to Himself as the Son of Man, if you'll remember that I made that point last week. He was the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 4, or, in, or Daniel chapter 7. But Jesus, being submissive to the rule of law, did not insist that they believe simply because of His claims. In verse 31, Jesus said, If I alone bear witness about Myself, My testimony is not true. Does that strike you that He would say this? If I bear witness uh, of Myself by Myself, only, and, and I am the only witness, My witness is not true? The law stated that at least two or three witnesses were needed to validate one's testimony. Deuteronomy 19 verse 15 says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So, at least two witnesses, three, maybe even more. You needed several witnesses in order for... Um, for the testimony to be uh, considered by others to be accurate. Jesus submitted to the law. He didn't cut corners. 
He didn't become a law unto himself and say, I'm the only uh, testimony I need. Uh, he didn't decide which laws he was going to keep, which one, which laws he decided, uh, which laws he was going to ignore. How about you? Do you keep the law, or are there laws that you break or ignore to suit your own purposes? Especially if there's very little chance that you will get caught. And so Jesus was unwilling then to be his own self-witness. Since the law said it was uh, insufficient for Jesus to have only Himself as His witness, uh, He also reminded the religious leaders that John the Baptist bore witness to His true identity. You remember how in John chapter 1, verse 29, when John the Baptist saw Jesus, remember what He said, Behold! The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he testified to Jesus. In fact, at the very beginning of John's Gospel, the Scripture says John came to be a testimony, to be a witness to the true light that was coming into the world. The religious leaders remembered that John the Baptist was testifying to Jesus. Uh, Jesus reminded these religious leaders that they had endorsed John's ministry while the crowds were going out to the Jordan River to be baptized. Uh, we see that in verses 32 through 35 in our passage. And it's even possible that many of the religious leaders had been baptized by John the Baptist himself. And so Jesus tells them, you were willing to rejoice for a bit for for a bit of time in John's light. In other words, uh, John was an accurate witness to Jesus's true identity. But Jesus doesn't stop there with his reference to John the Baptist. In verse thirty-six, he said he had an even greater witness than John the Baptist. John the Baptist was only a man. After all, and Jesus says in verse 36 that the miracles that He was performing were also another powerful witness to the identity of Jesus Christ as the Son of God that was sent from the Father. So look at verse 36. Jesus said, But the testimony I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the works, the very works that I am doing, like healing a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. These bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Jesus performed miracles not to call attention to Himself in some kind of narcissistic display, but rather to announce to, to the world that the Kingdom of God had arrived. His miracles were a visible sermon that called attention to His identity as the Messiah that was sent from God. And it is stunning that these religious leaders could so easily dismiss His miracles and challenge Jesus' identity. Then in verses 47, or 37 through 41, Jesus pointed to even one other witness that bore um, testimony 
to the identity of Jesus. This last witness was none other than God the Father. So look at verse 37. Jesus said, And the Father who sent me has borne witness about me. Now I can just hear the religious leaders when Jesus says this. They were saying to themselves, I can just hear them now. We've never heard the, the we've never heard God speak audibly to us. Uh, and we certainly have not heard him testify verbally that Jesus is the Messiah, much less the Son of God. I'm sure they were saying this with a sneer in their hearts. But Jesus said to them, Yes, you have heard God speak, and you have heard him testify about me. You just refuse to accept his testimony. When the religious leaders, or when had the religious leaders heard God speak? When had they heard God testify that Jesus was the Messiah? Surely Jesus is on shaky ground when he said that God the Father was a witness to his to his identity. When had they heard this? When had they heard God speak? Well, look at verse 39. Jesus said, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about Me. On every page of Scripture, God has spoken. And on every page, He bears witness to the identity of Jesus as the Messiah. In fact, listen to what Jesus told a couple of His disciples after His resurrection. On the Emmaus Road in Luke 24, Jesus said to these two disciples, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Remember how the, we learned that the religious leaders took a legalistic approach to the Sabbath? Remember how they were much more concerned about travel restrictions or if they spit on the ground on the Sabbath day? Remember that? They took this very legalistic approach to the Sabbath. And they thought about those things a whole lot more than they thought about what it means to love God. The religious leaders took the same approach to the way that they studied the Scriptures. There were these very detailed rules for how you study the Scripture. And the reason they had these detailed rules were not to make them more effective at studying the Scripture, but rather to make sure that they reverenced the Scriptures appropriately. And as long as they were careful to obey all the right rules for obeying the Scripture, then they believed that they had eternal life. It didn't matter if their study of the Scriptures failed to lead them to repentance, because obviously their study of the Scripture was not leading them to repentance. It didn't matter that their study of the Scriptures was not leading them to walk by faith or to trust in God. For the religious leaders, the Scripture was an end in itself. When I used to teach uh, seventh grade Bible, uh, one of the things that I would teach the students was that 
Um, we want to be under the authority of God's Word. And I would put the Bible on my head. God's Word is our rule. God's Word is God's Word to us. We want to be in submission to it. And then I would do an, uh, use an, an opposite uh, illustration to teach that we want our lives to be built on the Word of God. And what I would do was I would put the Bible on the floor and I would step on it. And I would say, we want our lives to be built on the Bible. And I would look out at my 7th graders and I would see these horrified looks on their faces. And the reason they were so horrified was because I was standing on the Bible. They had this idea that this book is to be reverenced. It is the Word in the book. It is what we learn about God. It's what we learn about Jesus Christ and His grace. It's what we learn about the glory of God. What we learn about ourselves as sinners and the way, um, the way, the truth, and the life, who is Jesus, and how we can escape our sins and be uh, redeemed by Him. So it's not the book itself, but it is the words of the book. And these religious leaders, they had this idea that Scripture was an end in itself. As long as you were reverencing the Scriptures, then you had eternal life. And that's what Jesus is telling them uh, here in our passage. He says, you study them, and in them you think you have life. As long as you've got the Bible, as long as you've read the Bible, you've got eternal life. Roman Catholics take the same uh, approach uh, to their view of the Mass. You know, you, I talk to, to Roman Catholics all the time, well, and they'll say, I know very little about the Bible. I'm not really living a life that's consistent with morality, with Christian morality. But I go to Mass, so I hope I have eternal life. Protestants do the same thing. I know very little about the Bible. I read it very, very, uh, very little. I'm living a life that's inconsistent with Christian morality, but I walked an aisle and I prayed a prayer. I hope I have eternal life. Jesus was telling the religious leaders that we hear the testimony of God when we read God's Word. And the Father is testifying that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. The religious leaders, they heard God's Word. I think they even received God's Word as God's Word and believed that it was God's Word. But they did not respond to it. Jesus said, in fact, in verse 40, that they refused to respond to the Scriptures. Look at verse 40. He says to these religious leaders, You refuse to come to Me that you may have life. And so they read the Scriptures. God is telling them throughout the Scriptures, 
that Christ is the Messiah, that Jesus Christ is going to come, He's going to suffer, He's going to die, and He's going to be raised from the dead, and they don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. They would not respond to the Word. James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25 says, But be doers of the Word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. You know, I would guess that most here this morning would say that, that uh, yes, I believe that the Bible is the Word of God. And that is wonderful. But are you responding to it? You say, well, sure, preacher. I listen and respond every Sunday uh, when you preach. Well, that's not what I'm asking. I'm asking, do you read the Bible regularly for yourself to hear God speaking to you? It's kind of hard to respond if you're not regularly listening, don't you think? You say, well, the Bible is hard to understand. It's kind of dry to read. I'm not that disciplined to read it all the time. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon told his congregation back in 1855. And I'm reading what he says, maybe because I don't have the guts to say it as boldly as he did. Charles Spurgeon said, If this be the Word of God... What will become of some of you who have not read it for the last month? Month, sir? I have not read it for this year. Aye, there are some of you who have not read it at all. Most people treat the Bible very politely. They have a small pocket volume, neatly bound. They put a white pocket handkerchief around it, carry it to their places of worship. When they get home, they lay it up into a drawer till next Sunday morning. Then out it comes again for a little bit of a treat and goes to chapel. That is all the poor Bible gets in the way of an airing. That is your style of entertaining this heavenly messenger? There is dust enough on some of your Bibles to write the word damnation with your fingers. There are some of you who have not turned over your Bibles for a long, long while. And what think you? I tell you blunt words, but true words. What will God say at last? When you shall come before Him, He shall say, Did you read my Bible? No. I wrote you a letter of mercy. Did you read it? No. Rebel. I have, sent, I have sent thee a letter inviting thee to me. Didst thou ever read it? Lord, I never broke the seal. I keep it shut up. Wretch, says God. Then thou deservest hell. If I sent thee a loving epistle, and thou wouldst not even break the seal, what shall I do unto thee? And then he said to his congregation, Oh, let it not be so with you. Be Bible readers. Be Bible searchers. 
And so the question for you this morning is, do you receive this fourfold testimony um, that Jesus has pointed to? This fourfold testimony that establishes His identity. And not only do you receive it, but do you respond to it? It's a very straightforward question. Do you receive this fourfold testimony that Jesus has pointed to that establishes identity, and are you responding to it? This very straightforward question can be difficult to answer honestly. Look at verse 44. Jesus said, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? See, these religious leaders, they studied God's Word and they practiced their religion in order that they might receive glory from one another. In other words, their goal was to impress each other or impress others rather than truly love and trust God. Are there any of you who are practicing Christianity simply to impress another person? Children practice their Christianity to impress their parents. Spouses practice their Christianity to appease their significant other. Politicians practice Christianity to to gain more votes. Others practice their Christianity to build up their reputation. What about you? What is your motive for following God? For seeking to love Him, to obey Him? Be honest. Be honest before God. You know, He knows you through and through. He knows you better than you know yourself. Not only that, we should all know that our hearts often deceive us because God's Word tells us the heart is desperately wicked, um, easily deceived. Look at what Jesus told the religious leaders in verse 42. He said, I know that you do not have the love of God within you. It was like Jesus had x-ray vision into their hearts. And He really does. It's not literally x-ray vision. He can see into our hearts better than a a doctor can see into our bodies using x-rays. He knows exactly who we are. He knows exactly what our motives might be. He knows the quality of our faith. And so be honest. Be honest before God. Because you cannot hide from Him. You cannot fool Jesus. But if you're saying, I'm feeling kind of discouraged about myself, don't be discouraged. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Come to Him now. Even if He is looking on your heart and you know He's looking on your heart and you you know that He sees mixed motives, that you know that He sees selfishness where there should be selflessness, 
that he sees selfishness where there should be God-centeredness? Don't become discouraged. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Come to Him now. Come to Him with your mixed motives. Come to Him with your self-deceit. Come to Him with all your sins, whatever they may be. However deeply they may be hidden in your heart, I assure you, you are no worse than those religious leaders to whom Jesus was speaking. And I end with this. Verse 34. Look at the second half of verse 34. And look what He said to these religious leaders. He said, I say these things to you so that you may be saved. Your self-deceit, your mixed motives, wherever you may be in your life right now, it is impossible to put you beyond the reach of God's grace. Come to Him. Come to Him now. Come to Him honestly. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we bow our hearts. We pray the prayer that David prayed in Psalm 139. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Know our anxious thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in us in order that You might lead us in the way everlasting. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.